Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent talk with LGW Leadership Today entitled Enacting Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging for the Future of Work. everyone really excited for the conversation we're going to have on leadership today with Jonathan uh, Westover so today we're going to be talking about how we can uh, uh, become more purpose-driven more impactful leaders by understanding the alchemy of truly remarkable leadership and uh, really thrilled to have with us Jonathan Westover Jonathan uh, is a professor, is a chair of department at Utah Valley University uh, on leadership and organizational development, uh, has written a couple of great books on leadership. And what we're going to do is I've asked Jonathan to spend a little time sharing some of his thoughts and perspectives and framework all throughout when he is uh, uh, speaking or later on. Feel free to submit your questions in the Q&A feature. I will be monitoring that and make sure to incorporate any and all of those questions to Jonathan. Jonathan uh, Westover, welcome to the conversation with the Leadership Greater Washington community. Really excited to have you with us. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be with all of you. Uh, I love the Washington area. Uh, I, I get a chance to go back. Well, pre-COVID, it seems like I was going back there at least a couple times a year and uh, I hope to be back again soon. So it's great to be with all of you. And uh, I appreciate that kind of introduction. And Mahan and I had a chance to chat. What was it, Mahan, maybe eight, nine months ago that we we talked um, and recorded for your podcast. And, yes. and then that aired a little while ago. So I uh, invite people to, to check that out as well. We'll talk about some of the, the same things, some uh, similar topics today. Uh, as we get started, I just wanted to share my screen with everybody and hopefully without any hiccups here. <clears throat> All right, so uh, as Mahan said, um, I, I'm, I'm tapping into material from my two recent books, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership and Bluer Than Indigo Leadership. And I thought I would focus my comments uh, specifically on, on enacting diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging for the future of work. That's just one small subset of what I feel is the important leadership alchemy needed for the future of work is the DEI and B uh, elements. Uh, but I, I welcome questions uh, throughout my presentation. Feel free to interrupt me, or we can wait uh, until the end. That's fine. And it doesn't need to be about DEI and B stuff. It can be about any leadership topic. I'm more than happy to uh, to address that and share uh, with all of you. So to start, 
uh, if I can advance my slide, there we go. To start, uh, I just thought I'd sh share really briefly about why alchemy. Um, I thought long and hard about you know, what I wanted the title of that book to be. And I chose alchemy because I feel like leadership really is this unique um, kind of descriptor. Um, alchemy is a, a unique descriptor of, of leadership. It, it has scientific grounding, right? There's lots of research on uh, effective leadership and, and best practices and, and things like that. Uh, but there's there's real art to it, and and ultimately my hope and desire is that I can help everyone um, to really grow into their potential uh, as a leader. And as a leader, my desire is to help everyone that I lead to grow into their potential. And so I feel like that is the the crux of what alchemy is all about. Um, it, it's about taking something that's truly remarkable already. Uh, you have this really nice. Um, some, some sort of nice material that has innate value. And then you're trying to create something even more valuable from it. Uh, and, and that's what I feel like leadership is in each of our potentials. We're already uh, capable people. We already have a lot of uh, capacities, capabilities, and competencies, but we can refine those and we can develop further and we can help our team develop further so that we can all uh, rise together and rising tide lifts all ships. So that's why I couch things in the in the way of alchemy. And I just like the word, you know, itself, the, me, the medieval forerunner of chemistry, a sort of mixture of art, speculative philosophy, and physical sciences. And I, I think that's that's really what leadership is all about. And trying to advance my slides. I'm not sure what the issue is. There we go. Okay. So in terms of the skills needed for the future of work. I'm happy talking about any of these in the Q and A, um, and, and you can see I, on the outer ring, there's all these meta drivers of societal change. We're in an increasingly computational world with superstructured organizations. We're in more connected now than ever before. All these new media ecologies and ways to connect. Uh, we have smart systems, smart machines, AI, machine learning, all of those sorts of things that allow us to connect. And then we have shifting demographics. We have extreme longevity, for example. Um, within the center of the circle, then, we have all of these different capabilities and competencies that are really essential uh, it, for future-focused leaders. In an increasingly messy, complex, and nuanced world where we, you know, it, it's kind of this, this myth of certainty. And I, I really like to think of it even as um, kind of I would call it uh, the sin of certainty, to, to quote uh, uh, a religious author that I read, um, that we, we can really get into trouble when we get stuck in dogma and we get stuck in rigid thinking. Uh, so we need to be more flexible. We need to, to be more adaptive and be able to iterate. And we just need to be able to, to sit in the discomfort amidst, amidst the, the messiness so that we can um, guide our, our people and our organizations into a positive future. Uh, so here, here Jonathan, in this, yeah, go for it. Jonathan, I want to uh, jump in here because this is a this is a relevant point, and would love for you to expand on it a little sure. bit. One of it is uh, the fact that the uncertainty is not necessarily because of us having gone through uh, the pandemic past couple of years. A lot of a lot of leaders. One of the challenges that I find 
is that they are putting this in the context and the uncertainty. They're seeing it happening or they think it's happening as a result of the pandemic. And part of the uh, point you're making and the best thought leaders and the people who have thought about it uh, make is that the level of uncertainty is going higher and it is not because of the pandemic. So if you don't mind, just very briefly again, uh, yeah. highlighting these key areas that will keep impacting the faster pace of uncertainty as we look to develop our leadership uh, that you highlight later too. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the pandemic certainly in many ways accelerated us into this world of uncertainty and and technological adoption and virtual and dispersed workforce and you know all of those sorts of things um we, the, the trajectory was all already there we were already seeing those trends and we just kind of saw those speed up over the last 18 months but the meta drivers of change have been there um the geopolitical and socioeconomic drivers um that that are shifting the very nature of work the nature of our organizations and how we lead and how we need to lead um those have all been there and and we can see a pretty clear trajectory over the last several decades of of the direction that we've been going and it's just speeding up uh we're we're getting uh further and further into this uncertainty and so it you know it's kind of i i think of like my my father or my grandfather's generation and the dominant models of leadership in organizations in their generations. And there was much more of a command control approach, much more of a, you know, we know what you need to do now, we're gonna tell you what to do now, go do it, that kind of an approach. And that just doesn't work anymore. I'm not so sure it worked all that great back then either, but it certainly doesn't work now. Uh, we need to lean on the expertise of our people. We, have, we should have diverse teams uh, with, you know, cognitive diversity as well as racial, ethnic, and gender, and other types of of diversity. We need people with different skill sets. Uh, we need to lean on their expertise, and and we our role as a leader is to facilitate the collective um, imagination of our team, and and to drive uh, creativity and innovation amongst our team. And it's not to just kind of be an order giver or uh, to kind of maintain tight control uh, and and uh, and then push things out to to the kind of the worker bees, which is kind of an older model of how a lot of organizations seem to function. Uncertainty is the name of the game. And if, if we want to stay relevant as a leader, if we want our organizations to stay relevant and with the ability to have you know, uh, a distinct competitive advantage that adds value to the market, then we we have to be able to, you know, address these types of drivers that are in this, the center of this circle. And, you know, just one of them is, you know, this cross-cultural competency. Um, I, I Well, several of these, I think, relate to DEI and B efforts, but certainly the cross-cultural competency, competency uh, does. And we, we just need to be, um, quick and adaptive, and we need to get out of our silos. We need to rely on the expertise of other people. I don't know if that kind of helps with your question. It, it, it really does. I appreciate you uh, uh, sharing your thoughts on that, uh, Jonathan. Uh, uh, one thought on my end, and uh, there's a, a great question asking for clarification on something, is that uh, even with respect to the military, in that when there is clarity and understanding uh, of the future, 
when there is very little change happening, it's easier to operate in a command and control mode. You can argue whether it's the right way or not, but it's easier to operate that way. A lot of our organizations, a lot of the leadership that we've learned over the years has been based on that command and control because organizations could sit down and pretty well project what's going to happen a year or three yeah. years from now and have a strategy around it. Uh, the, the, this is a critical point that you make with this level of uncertainty. There is need for a very different structure and flexibility, which is actually what uh, anyone has read, Team of Teams, General McChrystal, did a great job with that with the special forces, where the decision making is totally different from the traditional command and control structures. So the more uncertainty there is, and because of the uh, points that Jonathan made, we will have greater and greater levels of uncertainty the more the decision-making needs to be at a much uh, different level than traditionally yeah. approach. Now, Jonathan, uh, Robert uh, Gunling asks, uh, I wonder if it's possible to know more about uh, what's meant by super-structured organizations. Yeah, sure. Um, and we could go down the rabbit hole on any of these. And so I'm going to give kind of a quick, um, quick and dirty uh, kind of, explanation. Um, but certainly, the, it, this is a fun topic. And all of these, I, I think, are worthy of, a, you know, an hour or two conversation, <laughs> and how they're, how they're impacting things. But what we see in, in terms of the nature of organizational design uh, is a fundamental shift over, you know, there, there's been kind of this trajectory towards flattened hierarchy, uh, more uh, integrated teams across organizations, uh, matrix structures, for example, uh, and interdisciplinary cross-functional teams um, and those sorts of things. We've seen a shift towards more self-developed, uh, self, uh, self-organized, and self-managed teams. Um, and so super-structured organizations, in part, what I'm intending in this bubble is to, to talk about kind of the, the nature of shifting organizational structures generally, but also what we see is these, these mega corporations. Um, and for a long time with antitrust laws and such, we saw some mega corporations getting um, pulled apart into separate pieces. But now we have these transnational mega corporations uh, with more and more um, influence and control, all while trying to flatten the hierarchy and tap, like, like you just said, Mahan, to try to get decision-making and creativity and innovation down to the lower levels where the expertise is. So this is like happening simultaneously where we have these huge mega corporations um, and, but we're also trying to push down decision-making. Uh, and that, that fundamentally is just shifting the way organizations are functioning and how leaders are trying to lead within those organizations. Um, so I don't know if that helps as a brief explanation, um, but it's certainly going to change the landscape of, of what work looks like for a lot of people. Um, an, another perhaps tangential element to this, and it's not one of the main bubbles here on this, the drivers on the outside ring, um, but we see more and more of these, these mega corporations, super structured organizations. Um, also, while we see an increase in the uh, contingent workforce and the gig economy. And so what many organizations are doing now, even these huge mega organizations, you know, they may have 100,000 plus employees or whatever, uh, but they're also sourcing talent 
they're renting talent from these various gig platforms, um, which allows for a lot more flexibility. And that is also just shifting the very nature of, of what it means to be an employee, uh, what it means to, to have a career uh, and what work looks like. And you know, when we're talking about gig economy, it's not just the Ubers of the world. I'm talking about coders and marketing people and design people and like any functional area you can think of, there are contract workers and gig workers, and there are platforms to connect them to these organizations that often will just rent their talent. And it's kind of two-sided. You have the organizations themselves that want the flexibility and so they're relying more and more and more. And there's a pretty clear upward trend trajectory over the last couple of decades of this. Um, they, they want more flexibility. So they're, they're doing more of that. And there's more opportunity uh, for gig workers. But younger generations, the younger millennials and Gen Z, they, they are embracing gig work much more. Uh, they're kind of defying the, you know, the traditional notions of like what it, the, what the American dream is and what it means to like arrive in a, into adulthood and, you know, the, 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 the single family home with the white picket fence and you get married and have kids and like more and more young people, they don't want to be tied down to a single company job. Uh, they want more flexibility. Uh, I just yesterday on my podcast, I was interviewing uh, a really fascinating gentleman who uh, he, he's CEO of a tech company and he lives in like a camper van and he, he works remotely and he just travels anywhere he wants. He's a digital nomad. And that's like more and more common um, that, that people are choosing that. And so there's this whole, there's so much we can unpack here with this, this, this bubble and what I titled the superstructured organizations, but the overall, the, the very nature of work and careers and what, that looks like for organizations and employees is is shifting and so that just adds to the complexity and the uncertainty of what this what leadership is going to look like in the future Dot. hopefully that helps fantastic okay so so again in the center here we have all of these different uh, capabilities and competencies uh, that I just think are really essential. And I, I'll focus, you know, more on the on the cross-cultural competency, which would include DEI and B um, stuff as well. And so now I want to share a couple elements from uh, my two books. Uh, so the first is from my most recent book, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership. Um, and this, this proverb, this is Korean proverb, uh, that I learned when I was living in Korea. I, I lived uh, first as a service missionary for my church uh, for a couple of years, and then I went back to work with LG Electronics. Um, and so learning the language, learning the culture, uh, it was just all so fascinating, I, and I loved it, and I just ate it up. And, and these proverbs, based on, in many cases, Buddhist or Confucius teachings, uh, were things that I, I just really latched on to, uh, and I have just been impact, so impactful in my life. And so I write about some of these in, in these two books. And one of them is, is Chulam Jie, which means bluer than indigo. And indigo is not, we, we don't use the word indigo to describe color in Western culture all that often, uh, but it's, it's the, this really deep, vibrant blue, the bluest of blues. And in Asian culture, in Korean culture, uh, there's so much reverence and deference given to leaders and to teachers and to that, those who are older. Um, and, and so we look to them. We look to them as indigo. They're the bluest of blues. They're the vibrant, deep, vibrant blues. 
Um, the idea behind bluer than indigo is the truly great leader, the truly great teacher, their sole role and responsibility is to, to help develop their people, the people on their teams, the people in their class to become bluer than indigo or greater than themselves. Uh, that, that comes back to a servant leader uh, mindset and mentality <clears throat> that it's not about me, it's not about my ego, it's not about me um, gathering power and control and, and, and hoarding it and hoarding information and like maintaining my power. That's not what leadership is about. True leadership is about developing the people around me to, to maximize their full capacities and potential. And if I want to become great as a leader, it, that happens as I develop everyone else around me. And like I said earlier, a rising tide lifts all ships. So the, the best surefire way for me to be in a, a successful leader is to empower my people, to lean on the expertise of my people, to facilitate their growth and development. And ultimately the best possible outcome for me as a leader would be that now I have this whole team of people that I've helped to develop that are that surpass any capabilities that I might have. And then it just continues on and hopefully they do the same thing with their teams, et cetera. So Jonathan, on this one, I, I, I love both the analogy, uh, bluer than indigo and the concept. The question I ask in my own mind and I uh, continually get frustrated with is that within the leadership conversation, thought leadership, uh, whether it's from you or other great thought leaders, this is the concept that is uh, primarily in different shapes and forms promoted that uh, this is how leaders need to behave. However, the reality of a lot of what we end up celebrating are entrepreneurs that are in many instances the opposite of bluer than indigo leadership. So where is the disconnect uh, with respect to what we say is the right way to lead and guide teams and the people that uh, we seem to be celebrating uh, that have done great things with their organizations or businesses, who in many instances run totally counter to uh, whether it's a servant leadership mindset or bluer than indigo leadership. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is obviously how we lead depends on the context we're in. And uh, an entrepreneurial leader, that often is a bit of a different thing than, you know, someone who's a middle management, you know, on up and, you know, into the executive ranks in a large corporation. Um, it just looks different. It's a different, it's largely different skill sets. Um, and, and so that's, that's one piece of it, I suppose. And different context requires, you know, different approaches at different times, even from the same person. Part of it also is just the the fact that you know the the media tends to focus on the flashy, right? And so so we do highlight um, kind of the outrageous, the outlandish, the flashy, uh, and so those are the types of messages that get portrayed and illustrated probably the most. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's the most common uh, or or what would be necessary in most organizations most of the time for sustainable uh, development and growth and, and just sustainable, um, business practices to add value to the market. Um, and so, you know, for every Elon Musk or Steve jobs and, you know, which are, who are brilliant people and are do incredible things and they're highlighted all the time, you know, th there's thousands of 
more servant leader oriented people that are actually helping things to happen, that are helping things to run. And I would say, you know, even like Steve Jobs, for example, you know, he had he had his complimentary counterparts, the other other leaders on his team, uh, you know, so it wasn't just him, like it was it was him in his own kind of persona uh, and his approach, but then he had other people to kind of round out, you know, the the leadership team and, and to help push things forward in a positive way. Um, you know, I, I, I do believe strongly that if, if, if we're in an organization where there aren't any kind of servant leader minded people, that that's probably going to end up being a pretty toxic place where very few of us would ever want to work. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean every single person's going to be that way. Uh, I do think, uh, and I, and I think there's a lot of research to back this up that, that, uh, generally speaking, recognizing again with the caveat that people have to rise to the occasion and whatever the circumstance in different context, sometimes we have to take different approaches. Uh, but generally speaking, for most of the time, uh, that if you want a sustainable, innovative team, you want a healthy culture, psychological safety, uh, all of those sorts of things that you have to uh, have at least as part of your repertoire as a leader, this idea that my goal is to develop the capacities of my people and how people do that, you know, their approach is going to be a little bit different depending on the context, the organization, the industry, whatever, who, you know, who happens to be on their team. Um, but it comes back to like, I need to be able to develop my people and support them and empower them. And if that isn't happening um, within the organization, it's going to become a, an abusive, toxic, uh, psychologically unsafe uh, place and not, it's certainly not going to be the kind of place that's going to have the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging elements that, that I'll be talking about here in just a moment. Now, uh, Jonathan, the other challenge uh, to this also, so one is in some instances, these are particular individuals that are repeatedly celebrated for some success in a specific field that doesn't necessarily translate. Uh, maybe in some of their instances, they were successful in spite of their flaws, not because of those flaws. Yeah, yeah. On the other, on the other side of it, imagine uh, almost every single person involved in uh, LGW is familiar with the servant leadership concept and everything else. And people are nodding as they are seeing this or as they are hearing this, and they say yes, 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 that's right. And if asked. Most of us would say, yes, this is my approach <laughs> to leadership. Right, right, so right. I, I get it that keep keep telling it for those other people, but I'm 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 there. And you do you do talk about uh, Jahari's window and blind spots also. I, I would love for you to uh, talk a little bit about that because again, one of the challenges I see in the leaders I work with, Jonathan, and I'm sure you run into this also, is that they nod in many instances coolest to the fact that they are not necessarily uh, approaching this. We give it lip service a lot yeah, yeah. more than with practices. Yeah, and that's the reality is we give lip service to a lot of things <laughs> uh, in organizations and as leaders. All the while there are, are inequitable, um, toxic systems, you know, unfair, policies, practices, procedures, whatever. So we can give lip service to servant leadership, 
Uh, we can give lip service to employee empowerment, to diversity, equity, and inclusion, like all of these things, like everyone kind of knows, like those are the things we should be talking about. Those, these things are important. Um, but is it actually happening? Is it actually, are we moving the needle? Are we improving things within our organization? And that's where it really matters. Conversations are a good start, starting point, but we have to actually start to disrupt negative systems and rebuild uh, when necessary, um, dismantle and then rebuild uh, more healthy organizations. And that's that's really where the hard work of servant leadership or DE&I work or, you know, whatever, that's, that's where the hard work really happens. The other point that you mentioned, you know, that with the, with the, the, um, the gaps in our understanding um, and the hidden flaws that we all have, it just speaks to the need to surround ourselves with really good people, have a psychologically safe environment where people can speak up and where we can get continual feedback. And then we as leaders need to just be self-reflective and introspective on a regular consistent basis, like daily <laughs> about how things are going. And if we have a problematic situation occur, we have a, you know, a, a meeting that doesn't go as well as we'd hoped. We have a performance conversation that didn't go as well as we'd hoped. Um, you list, you name it, right? Whatever, something doesn't go the way we hoped it would, um, then let's pause and reflect on that. And chances are there's something we can improve. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean it's all my fault, but it it does mean I need to at least take the time to, to consider that my culpability and, 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 you know, how I might be responsible for some of those things. And if we can combine self-reflection and introspection with a healthy amount of feedback that we're getting from external sources through a, a psychologically healthy environment, um, then we can, we can shrink the, the, in the Jahari window, you know, approach, you can shrink the hidden window. You can shrink that, that area that's not known to yourself and, uh, to other people, you can become more aware uh, of what those flaws are and you can start to work on them. Does that mean we're going to become perfect on every last thing? And we're going to have like amazing competencies and capabilities across the board in every area. Of course not, but we can mitigate our weaknesses, and we can turn them into at least um, relative competencies. And then we can leverage, you know, our real capabilities, the things that we're really great at and expand those. Um, so I, I just think that's, that's so vital. And you're absolutely right. I think every leader out there um, probably thinks, well, not every leader, but most leaders probably think that, yeah, I, I believe in developing my people, I believe in empowerment. Um, but how many of them are actually doing it? Uh, this also speaks to the importance of humility as a leader. And honestly, the, the, one of the things that I, I find to be the, the most um, dangerous is when you find leaders who just, they, they think they know, they think they have it all figured out. Um, some of the most dangerous people that, that I ever encounter are, are just have this, this, uh, this intellectual arrogance about them. Uh, and they're very smart, capable people. Like, there's no question about that. But the question becomes, are, are they humble enough to actually recognize their flaws, their weaknesses, their shortcomings, uh, and where they're perhaps not, not stacking up in ways that they really could or should? And without humility, uh, then it's inevitable. Like, you're going to fall into that trap because, you know, we all have pride. We all, you know, where you're successful in your career, you get promoted, you get, you go higher and higher 
up the hierarchy and you think I'm here for a reason. I'm here because I'm the best. I'm here because I'm the smartest. I'm here because I'm the most capable. And, and so everyone needs to listen to me because I figured it out. Now I'm going to tell them how to figure it out, man. That's a really dangerous approach. And if that's the trap, if we allow ourselves to drink the Kool-Aid and to fall into that trap, um, then regardless of whatever our best intentions are, we're going to create toxic environments or at least environments that aren't as effective, efficient, and innovative as they could be. Excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, The Journey of Becoming a Truly Remarkable Leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue. What some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There's no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of our problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. Okay, so I, you know, I, I really, I love this idea of bluer than indigo. It's something that I reflect on often. Um, you know, and, and again, some people take it the wrong way. It's like not to say, it's not to be conceited. It's not to say I'm indigo, I'm amazing. Um, the whole idea behind the proverb is that you see yourself as capable and now you're gonna help everyone else around you to become even more capable, better than you. Uh, it's not about you at all. It's about the other people, right? So for anyone who might be listening, who, who might you know, be confused on that point, um, it, it, it is not about you. It's not about your ego. Uh, and it really never should be. The best leaders get out of their own way and they don't limit themselves based on their own, you know, understanding. They rely on their people. Um, okay, for, I think I'm gonna skip this. This goes along with, um, with Bluer Than Indigo, just leading with a growth mindset. I, I'm sure everyone listening is, has talked about that and heard people speak about that extensively. Uh, the bottom line is, it comes back to this intellectual humility that we just have to recognize we don't know everything. We don't have it all figured out. We have to continually be learning and growing and developing. That applies to leaders just as it applies to the people on our teams. And we need to model growth mindset you know, for people on our teams. Another proverb um, that I talk about uh, in the, the Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership book is this, this frog in the well proverb, umur ane gegori. And this is similar to um, Plato's allegory of the cave for people who may be familiar with that. The idea here is 
if you're a frog born at the bottom of a well, you're a little tadpole, you, you, you grow, um, and, and now you, you're, you're there at the bottom of a well, and your whole world, your whole experience is the bottom of this well, right? You look up and you can only see that narrow little pillar of, of light and sky above you. And, and then you have, you know, whatever happens to be living down in the well with you. And that's about it. And you're probably pretty high in the food chain. But the reality is it's cold, it's wet, it's dark, you're trapped. There's really no way out. But you also don't even really know it. You don't recognize it because that's all you've ever known. You don't know that there's a whole big wide world out there. Um, but what, what ends up happening for a lot of people, you know, this is part of the cognitive, um, psychological, moral development of human beings is as we mature and as we grow up and we experience more difference and we experience other people who aren't, you know, strictly like us, that we, we're kind of like rising out of the well and we start to see more and more of the sky. And if you get to the point where you're actually to the top of the well, now you, your little frog head, you're, you peek out. And for the first time you realize like, wow, this whole, this world is vast. There's, you know, the, the beautiful mountains and the landscape and the trees and all the flowers. And you have all these different forms of animal life that you've never seen before. You have all of this stuff that you never experienced at the bottom of a well. Um, and different people respond to different ways to that. Um, coming back to the certainty or uncertainty conversation that we were having earlier, many people uh, really, and, and, and researchers who have looked at moral, psychological, um, cognitive development, they, they've, they've uh, been able to put a typology to you know, the, the population, the general population and how people tend to react. And the vast majority of people when they get to the top of the well, they look around, they say, Ooh, that's cool. But, Oh, it's scary. There's all these other animals that are going to try to eat me. And they just retreat back down into the well and, and they find safety and comfort. And it's what they know. It's, it's how they've lived their whole life up to that point. And so they just repeat retreat back into the well. And that's, that's like us, um, really sticking with our dogmas, um, sticking with, with, uh, kind of our rigid thinking. We all have our own unique norms, values that are, you know, uh, developed within ourselves through our upbringings, our diverse upbringings. And, and most people in society tend to kind of stick with, with that, how they were raised. Um, and they don't really want to question the assumptions or the values or the norms or the beliefs of how they were raised. Uh, because that's what's comfortable to them. That's what's certain to them. And, and there's comfort in that certainty. Um, but there's another group of people, um, a smaller group that when they look outside, they notice that there are actually all these other wells all over the place. So their well is not the only well. In fact, they can see like other little frogs peeking their heads out of other wells all over the landscape. And they decide, wow, that's really cool. This, you know, I can't believe that my parents never told me about all these other wells. And, and now they want to go explore. And so now they're going to go hop around and they're going to go explore all these other wells. And then what a lot of those individuals do, some of them return back to their original well and retreat um, out of fear. Uh, other people find a new well and then they go into that well and they, they get excited about this new experience. And then they essentially trade dogma and ideology for ideology, whatever their own limited experience was in their own well as an upbringing now they trade it for a different experience and it's new and it's exciting and they might stick with that one for a while and then go to another one but ultimately they're trading ideology for ideology the the very rare individual from a moral psychological cognitive development perspective the rare individual is the one that gets out 
of their well, they might explore the other wells, but they don't retreat into any well. And for the first time, they recognize the beauty of everything that's around them, the diversity that's around them. And they just lean into the discomfort. They lean into the messiness, the complexity, and, uh, and the uncertainty. And they don't they don't worry. They don't worry themselves about it. They they recognize that yes, now I can get eaten by a predator, uh, but I want to live a full, fulfilling life. That means I am not going to um, keep myself stuck in a well my entire life, right? Um, so I love this proverb. There's there's so much we can unpack here, and I could go on and on and on to talk about um, some of the implications of this. But I think you get the picture, like. In, in organizations, well, in life in general, and then in organizations more specifically relevant to this conversation, you know, my hope is that I'm not a frog in a well, uh, that I'm not retreating back into my wells out of fear. Uh, and in fact, that I can learn to embrace um, all of the beauties of the world around me, which includes a ton of stuff that I'm not really fully aware of or, un or understand or can even com uh, completely comprehend. Uh, and if I'm a leader in an organization, I want to surround myself with not just people that are from my own well, my own tribe, my own, uh, you know, specific background and upbringing, but I want to surround myself with people from all different types and stripes and different ways of viewing things, because um, that's, that's where the action is, that's where the beauty is, that's where, um, yes, some uncertainty, some messiness and complexity, but that's where uh, we're going to get to some of the best thinking, the best creativity and innovation, and that can help us move the needle uh, in terms of our own development, our team development, and, and the success of our organization. By the way, as you're, as you're going through that, uh, Jonathan Beverly also said she loves the visual, uh, the print that you're using here. And I, I told her and the participants that we will share uh, uh, visuals uh, slides later on now with respect to this uh, jonathan so both as individual leaders and organizations again this requires a different mindset different embracing of risk different uh, embracing of uh, uncertainty which in many instances again with the pandemic we were forced to do as individuals and as organizations i'm not sure any of us would have chosen to take on some of the new wells or new opportunities we did if we hadn't been forced yeah. so what do the <clears throat> leaders that you look at and the organizations that do this successfully what do they do differently to open up to the opportunities of the different wells and to that external world uh, the concept is beautiful so what can we do How, ourselves yeah. and with our organizations yeah and i i think it starts with ourselves. it starts with our um approach and i know i, I just really quickly went over the, the the growth versus fixed mindset but we it's it's a myth we don't have to be stuck like many people choose to be stuck in their well, they choose to kind of be where they're at. And they're, you know, I got my implicit biases, I have my prejudices, I have whatever, but it is who I am. And, you know, it, that's, it's who I am. And it's not going to change. That's a myth. We know from research around fixed versus growth mindset, that we can change, we can grow. So it starts with uh, ourselves and doing that self reflection, and being open to better understanding our prejudices, our biases, uh, our, uh, you know, implicit biases, even 
through doing deep reflective work and getting feedback from other people, that that is going to help us recognize um, some of what we're missing. Uh, and ultimately we have to make a choice. Are, are we going to uh, try to, you know, and it's gonna be uncomfortable, being around difference is uncomfortable, um, but are we going to try to lean into that discomfort and then over time become more comfortable because we have become more familiar with difference or, or are we going to retreat? And I, I think, for example, I'm like, I'm on a university right now, a university um, setting, and it's wonderful that we have uh, lots of different groups. You know, we have student clubs, for example, and we have lots of different groups of, of people that can get together. And in some cases, this allows students who are completely different from each other to connect with each other and to learn and grow. And that's part of what university is all about, right? Um, but in other cases, what you see is you see populations of people um, finding each other, uh, for, you know, they for solidarity purposes. Um, and, and because of that, if, if they're too deep and enmeshed with everyone else who's just like them through their own club or interest group or whatever, that they're missing out on the opportunity for growth and expansion and, and learning how to be adaptive and, and, and being with other people. So uh, it, it just starts with us recognizing that it is possible that we can grow, we can learn about our biases, we can overcome them, we can uh, mitigate them, and, and we can interact with other people if we choose to. Um, and then actually, I think I'll, I'll click to the next slide um, because what does this really look like then in organizations? How are we gonna approach this? And it also requires us to get beyond this notion of kind of those traditional elements of diversity. Um, so over on the left-hand side on the slide, you can see the diversity wheel. Um, and there's different depictions of this, but you know, this is one example you know, where you kind of have those outward manifestations, those things people can see easily. Um, gender uh, tends to be one of those things, physical and mental ability, age, race, uh, et cetera. And, and people can look at you, they can kind of make some judgments. And, we want more diversity around the table. We want more gender diversity. We want more women in leadership positions, for example. Um, that's important and representation is very important. But when we talk about diversity, it's not just the stuff that's in that middle circle. As we go out to the outer rings, you have other things that are also equally important um, and they're not as obvious. And you, don't, you won't really even ever know about them unless you really get to know the individual unless you have conversations with them, unless you develop uh, relationships of trust with them and they open up to you and, and you're vulnerable with them and they're vulnerable with you. And so what we want in organizations, when, when we talk about diversity, we want all of this diversity, right? We don't just want, you know, um, we don't want to tokenize people of different race or gender, for example. Um, that's not what it's about. It's about truly bringing every, you know, giving everyone equal opportunity in every sense of the term uh, and really helping for diverse representation around the table and amongst decision makers from all these different types of backgrounds and perspectives. All you can consider all these like different wells that people come up in, right? Um, so that's really important. But over on the right hand side, then you can see um, this this Venn diagram of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And is it important to get people around the table, diverse people around the table? Absolutely. But that in and of itself isn't going to accomplish a whole lot. And in, in fact, um, there are so many examples of organizations uh, that, you know, they, they have a real push towards diverse hiring, for example. Uh, that's wonderful. So now they get more diverse uh, representation uh, 
in, on their teams and uh, amongst their employees. But then the employees are sitting around the table and there's all these systematic inequities <laughs> in how men versus women are treated, for example, or, or implicit biases that impact um, how people of color experience the work culture uh, or all those sorts of things. And so the equity piece isn't there. So if you have diversity without equity, um, guess how many of those people are going to stick around in that organization? They're, they're not. You're going you're gonna to put a lot of work and energy into getting them there, and then they're going to leave because it's not a safe, healthy environment for them to be in. So we have to have equity conversations going hand in hand with our diversity efforts within the organization. Um, we have to dismantle um, negative systems and structures within the organization uh, challenge our, our understanding, our perspective, challenge our assumptions about why certain policies exist. And maybe, you know, there's a certain logic to why a policy was in place in, you know, in the past, but is it serving us today? And is it equitable? Is it actually going to create an environment where everyone has truly equal opportunity to contribute uh, and, and to progress in their career? Uh, and if, so there's tons of work that almost every organization needs to do in terms of the diversity and equity piece. Uh, and I don't mean to minimize that, but that also we have to get past that. So we then move into inclusion, creating a culture, an environment where everyone's perspective actually matters. Everyone feels included, but we have to get past inclusion and we get to belonging. And that's, that's the hallmark. That's what I want in my organizations with my, within my team. I want every single person, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, regardless of their socioeconomic status, their background, where they're from, whatever, like all that stuff. I want every single person to know that they're genuinely valued for who they are, that they can bring their full, whole authentic self to the workplace, that they're going to have opportunities to contribute in ways that are meaningful to them and, and that their contributions are going to be leveraged. That is what a culture of belonging is. And you can't get there unless you have the other areas. You can never get to a, 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 a organization culture of belonging if you don't first have diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, but I'm not so sure stopping, you know, stopping at diversity, equity, and inclusion isn't the answer either. We need to get beyond that. Uh, and it starts with me. It starts, I, I, can't, I can't force other people to challenge their biases, their assumptions, and their prejudices. Um, I can't force people to do that. But I can choose to do that for myself. I can model that for my team. I can help you know, through training, but also through dialogue and through dismantling systems and structures. I can start to right the ship in terms of creating an environment, at least for my team. I, might, I may not be in a position of influence to be able to do that for my whole organization, but I can do it for my team, for the people that I work with directly. Uh, and from there, we can grow in our influence and our ability to, to make positive change for others as well. I, I love what you just said, Jonathan. I can model it. And I think uh, leadership uh, is that modeling and that example. A lot of times leaders are looking for quick fixes uh, in some instances, uh, having a conversation or bringing a training session in to address diversity and inclusion. And uh, by all means, that there are times when those things are relevant. However, yeah. it's the modeling of the leader that makes the biggest difference. Consistently every day, right? Like doing it in a meaningful, sustainable way over time. The one-off training session, if it's a kickstart into like more that's going to happen, great. 
But if it's a one-off and that's all that's happening, then you're just checking a box and you're not doing anything meaningful. It's not going to have any sort of positive outcome. And in terms, and, and there's actually research on this, oftentimes those one-off events, they actually retrench people into their negative perceptions and biases. And so it actually causes more harm than good. Um, so we have to be thoughtful about kind of a holistic um, intervention strategy, like beginning to end, where are we at? Where do we want to get to? And what are all the activities and experiences that have to happen between now and then? And it's these one-off things aren't going to get us there. So there's so much more we can talk about. I recognize the time and I just want to open it up for more questions. So thanks everyone. I'll stop sharing my um my screen, and I just welcome any questions that anyone has. Yeah, uh, Jonathan, I uh, worked in a bunch of questions all throughout, so have a couple of more questions. If anyone wants to send any in Q&A, please send them to me and I'll ask uh, Jonathan. You also talk quite a bit about uh, sort of purpose-driven uh, yeah. career and being purpose-driven. And one of my frustrations, Jonathan, we actually had a conversation with LGW and Conscious Capital DC, which was outstanding about the need for purpose in organizations. And one of the things I raised is that purpose has also become almost like a buzzword. Yeah. All organizations nod and say we are purpose-driven. So for leaders and organizations to become truly purpose-driven, what do you see as, in essence, the approaches that the purpose-driven leaders and organizations take? Yeah, well, I mean, it comes back to, like we were talking about before with servant leadership, um, everyone's going to say they're purpose-driven. Everyone's going to say they're trying to have an inclusive environment. Everyone's going to say they're trying, trying to empower the people. Um, so actually look at the outcomes because intention isn't enough. I'm, I'm, I'm glad if people have good intentions, that's, that's a, a good positive first step. It's better than people like saying, no, nah, I'm just a prejudiced jerk and I'm happy to be so. <laughs> I want people to have good intentions, but what, what are the outcomes? What, what are the actual experiences of people in your organization? Um, do your employees feel like they have a purpose and that they're fulfilled in their work? Because if the answer is no, you're not a purpose-driven organization, <laughs> um, regardless of what's on your website, regardless of the rhetoric that is shared. And so a purpose-centered or uh, a purpose leader, a purpose-centered organization is going to do the hard work of actually developing meaningful, authentic, and genuine um, relationships of, of mutual accountability and trust with your people. You're going to know them. You're going to know their needs, their wants, their desires. You're going to know what purpose looks like and means to them, which is going to be a little bit different for everyone, by the way. Um, and, and you're going to actively try to align the work that they're doing with, you know, a grander purpose, a, a grander fulfillment and outcome. Now, does that mean that everyone is just going to like have a job that they love all the time and they're only doing stuff that they find super meaningful that they're passionate about? No, everyone has work that they have to do that isn't their favorite. I love being a professor, for example. I don't like grading. I've never liked grading papers, but it's a part of the job and I do it and, and I know it's going to help students. And so I kind of suffer through it and it's worth, you know, for all the other cool things I get to do as a professor, it's worth it. You know, if I also have to grade papers, right? We all have stuff like that. We all have to balance. And it, the idea here with a purpose-driven organization or a purpose-driven team or having a purpose-driven career, um, you know, it's, it's not to say that we have to like, 
love everything we do all the time, that's completely unrealistic. That's not humanity. That's not real life. Um, we all have ups and downs. But if I, as a leader, know my people, I can have those ongoing meaningful conversations with them and help them help my people think through, you know, how can this, how can the job I'm in right now, kind of this idea of lift where you stand, you can't change everything immediately. And maybe you, your career trajectory, you want to, you know, develop yourself so you can move on into more meaningful roles. That's great. But lift where you stand, what can you do right now to make the job you're doing more interesting, more meaningful. And, and in most cases, there are pretty simple, low cost or no cost things that you can do in almost any job to make it more meaningful and fulfilling. It, it, that's just the science of it. Uh, I do tons of research on this myself. And, and, and so have those conversations with people and, and help them develop a plan and, and follow up with them. And when that happens, then you actually have a purpose-driven organization. So, uh, uh, Jonathan, uh, Tony asked a great question that we can take a long time with, but we only have a couple of minutes. Uh, he says, how are those outcomes measured through employee surveys? So how do you recommend for that outcome orientation to be measured? Yeah, I, th I think employee surveys are fine. Um, but, it depends on how they're how they're implemented. Um, and so what often happens, what I see happen most of the time is you like have your annual employment engagement, employee engagement or culture survey that goes out. Uh, it goes out once a year or so, and then people respond. And then it, then the, you know, the consulting firm or whoever's helping the organization with it, they get the results back to them after a little while. And then it goes to the executive team and they review all this results. And then they push it down to the next level and the next level. And then it's usually like, three to six months later before there's actually any feedback given to line level employees. And, and so people are pretty cynical about it. Uh, and they just feel like nobody's actually paying attention to this feedback. No one's listening. No one's actually doing anything actionable with anything that's coming from these surveys. So if that's the way your organization's doing it, I, I would say it's, it's kind of like the, the old annual performance review. That, it, it's not going to accomplish what the original intent was. Um, and so having quicker, more pulse surveys, um, I think are going to be much more valuable. And, and also just having like the regular conversations. I know it's a qualitative approach rather than a, like a quantitative metrics driven approach, but I should with my team ha be having regular check-ins, not to, not to like uh, micromanage people, but just, just like see how are things going? What can I do to support you? I should be having regular conversations with people. And if I'm doing that, I will know how we're doing. And if I'm a humble leader and I am a, a self-reflective leader, I'll know what I need to be doing to improve uh, from a larger scale kind of metrics driven approach for the for the whole organization. Uh, yeah, we need, we need to identify the best metrics. Uh, we need to challenge our assumptions on what metrics, you know, may have been used in the past that we thought were most important that actually don't really tell us much of anything of what we're going for with our culture. Um, I think of, of the Moneyball example, for example. Yeah, you know, if you think of the old, the, the Oakland A's um, and Billy Bean and, and Moneyball and, and trying to build in analytics into how they're um, building the team and then tracking performance. One of the things that they said very early on, if you read the book or watch the movie is, that you have, you have to like actually have the right measurements in place in the first place. 
And so what, whatever you know, XYZ organization is doing, and maybe the Google's doing this and they say, this is the answer. This is what everyone should be doing. Okay, works for Google. Is that going to work for you? Uh, maybe, maybe not. And so you need to come up with your own metrics and you need to decide, like track them over time. Are these actually getting at what we're trying to accomplish? And in many cases, when I go and work with organizations, in many cases, they're measuring stuff that's completely disconnected from what they're actually interested in. Uh, and so again, they're just undermining themselves. They're spending a lot of time and energy and money um, for no real positive outcomes. Yeah, so the, the, the couple, of, couple of points I wanted to uh, underline is that in many instances, the intentions might be right. Measuring the outcomes is important. So I think that's a point you make, and I want to keep underlining and emphasizing it. And the outcomes, it's measures that matter, that is uh, challenging uh, to come up with. But in many instances, organizations are not measuring what matters with respect to uh, moving the organization forward. So it's tests. Uh, uh, OKRs are a great framework for that. But Jonathan, you have uh, opened up a lot of uh, questions, shared a lot of great thoughts uh, you, with both with your books, uh, Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Bluer Than Indigo. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time to share your thoughts with the Leadership Greater Washington community. Those of you that are on, when you get a chance, fill out the Survey Monkey link, give us some feedback. Really appreciate everyone joining the conversation. And thank you for elevating the conversation on leadership, Jonathan Westover. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all for joining. alchemy of truly remarkable leadership, ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years with increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition. The average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think.
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.